I'm Salma Jeff, Divisional Vice President of U.S. and Global Marketing for Abbott's Neuromodulation Business. At Abbott, we are working across our company to support communities with resources and technologies to fight the evolving impact of COVID-19. Getting new molecular antigen and antibody tests and rapid tests into the hands of frontline workers so people can receive the critical results they need. As the COVID-19 global pandemic unfolded in the United States, doctors from around the country rushed to New York City to assist in any way possible. Today, we hear from Dr. Brian Capel. Dr. Capel is a professor of neurosurgery, neurology, psychiatry, and neuroscience, and the director of the Center for Neuromodulation at the Mount Sinai Health System. For Dr. Capel, this was unfolding in his backyard, and he was at the epicenter of the pandemic at that time. He felt compelled to help with the crises in any way he could during those early months of COVID. Dr. Capel sat down with Keith Bediger, president of Abbott's neuromodulation business to discuss his experience. I kind of would start with, you were in a successful practice, you have a beautiful family. I know you already live in New York, so you're kind of at the, the epicenter kind of of the pandemic. What was it like going back to working in the ICU and treating you know, medically sick patients? Obviously when the uh, COVID crisis um, was gearing up, elective surgery was shut down. And obviously my practice is focused around elective surgery. And so I couldn't do the things that I am there to do. So I want to be useful. And, you know, I have colleagues that were really in the midst of it and my presence with them helped them in any way, then so be it. Then that's a good thing. Was it optional for you to go work in the ICU or was it a decision that you personally made? I, I think that the funny question, I think that given the severity of, uh, of the crisis, voluntary and involuntary sort of goes away. I mean, it's a crisis yeah. and you have to deal with it. So it, it's just, a you know, I mean, I would say it was voluntary, but having COVID foisted upon us wasn't voluntary. So it's a funny way of putting it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, could yeah. I have chosen to stay home? I, I suppose I could have, but it wouldn't have been the right thing to do. Were you on it? Were you working shifts? So you, were you working during the day at night and kind of what was it like day to day? Well, you know, we would have shifts that we would back up the people in the ICUs. Some of us took overnight call. I actually didn't do any overnight call, but you know, I had some day shifts. Some people actually had overnight shifts, et cetera. And we, we were there to supplement the critical care docs. Just from a human, a human nature, kind of a human perspective, what did you, I mean, what did you see every day from your colleagues and, and the nurses and everybody, you know, up, up and down the chain of the hospital that was most impressed, that you were most impressed by over the course of the pandemic or, and I, I know it's still going on, but. I think it's lessened up a little bit. I think that what was impressive is showing up in the face of a lot of fear and uncertainty, and they did it without question. Also, the way that Mount Sinai really, mo I mean, again, it's hard for me not to sound proud or, or, you know, about my particular institution, but that's the only thing I can make a comment on about what I saw about my clearly Mount Sinai mobilized all of its resources to address this. I mean, they built hospital wards in the lobby of the hospital with rebar and plumbing. I mean, they mobilized this in weeks. 
you know, a week or two. I mean, that that's that's impressive in terms of, you know, how we normally think of big bureaucracies taking forever to do things. And it was impressive to see the vast mobilization of all resources at Mount Sinai to address this crisis. So that was very, very impressive. That is impressive. So they actually, in the lobby of the, of the hospital, built, built infrastructure? Yeah. And- Including plumbing, wow. Plumbing, yep, everything. Electrical wow. plumbing and, and you know, those of us that have undergone contracting services in New York City know how long that takes. And for them to do this in such a short period of time, I, I think was very impressive. It goes to show what we are all capable of doing if the political and the other aspects of things are put aside and we are mobilized in a single unified effort. As time progressed and elective procedures began to start again, Dr. Capel wanted to ensure that his practice was as ready as it could be to safely reopen. He chose to take some of the key learnings from his time on the front lines during the center of the pandemic and apply them to how he approached his practice as patient concerns about the coronavirus continued. Anything that, you, that you'll take away that'll impact the way you'll, you'll practice going forward? This may sound selfish, but first of all, it, it really made me realize that what I do for a living is a privilege. I recently started doing DBS cases again. And I remember thinking to myself, I did it, my first case after two months, and I was really happy to do it. it made, you know, and I realized at the end of the day, this is a real privilege to, to be able to operate in that fashion, you know, to do that on a daily basis. So it certainly reinstilled a sense of gratitude about what I do, which was nice. Going forward, I think clearly telemedicine now is here to stay. We've been sort of circling around telemedicine for years, but there wasn't really a catalyst to make this truly something that has reached critical mass to the point of, but, and that's clearly here to stay, for sure. Mm-hmm. In whatever form it is, we are never going to be free of telemedicine, nor should we. I mean, this is a technology that's really helpful. Yeah. So how are you using telemedicine right now? Typically, typically, uh, I'll just give you a very small example. And the thing is, it's especially in our business, movement disorders, it's a little tricky because movement disorders as a field is such a hand-on field. I mean, if anything, it's probably the single most dependent field in neurology that is still dependent on the classic neurological physical examination more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So there's the biggest probably challenge in doing that. In terms of my own practice, typically before I operate on a patient, I usually have two in-person meetings for them. One to have the initial discussion about surgery and then usually within a week or so before surgery, because sometimes there's usually a month or two before that first consult and the second, I just think it's really important for their own well-being and their sense of calm to see me see my face again very shortly before surgery. I think it definitely settles people down, makes them feel like we're on the same page. So that meeting I tend to do via telemedicine right now, the second one. I, I, I still feel like if I'm gonna operate on somebody's brain, I have to meet them face to face. And what's very surprising is that our surgical volume so far is ramping up very, very quickly. I, I have yet to see a patient 
there've been some patients that say I'm a little nervous, but there is no patient yet that has said, I don't want to do it yet. And that really not one, not one yet. So you're not seeing a fear for of patients coming back to the hospital for a surgical procedure at all. I think that they're sort of, it's on their mind. Yeah. But I think it's, you know, look, when a patient decides to electively have brain surgery for their Parkinson's disease, it really shows how debilitated they are and how they really are motivated. I mean, look, I've always said these are the, some of the bravest people that I've ever encountered because they're voluntarily undergoing brain surgery to make their lives better, to really not only make their lives better, but make their family lives better so that they're, they're easier to take care of. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's not surprising to me that they're just this incremental risk on top of that they're willing to face. They're just brave people. So are you unfettered right now in your ability to do surgery or is it is your block time smaller? So it was for like a week or so, and then they basically uh, said just have at it, essentially. Which again shows how efficient my particular hospital is. You know, our leadership, specifically at Mount Sinai West, where I particularly work has been really extraordinarily strong. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a really nice community. As, as radical as they shifted gears to deal with the COVID crisis, now that we can, we can go back to our, our primary mission, which is great. So are you, after you put a lead in a patient, are they spending the night in the ICU? I never have my patients go to the ICU unless there's a complication. Okay. So I usually have my okay. patients go to the regular room anyway. So, and then they go home the next day. So um, what was nice, right. So our ICUs now have been completely cleaned and revamped from the COVID crisis. Also, look, by the way, you know, when we started this crisis, there was this feeling that surfaces could be contaminated. And I don't know if you noticed this, but the CDC has walked that back a week ago. That what can be contaminated? Surfaces. Right, because we were like, oh, okay. you know, Amazon mailed you a package. You were wiping that down. You were, and it turns yeah, yeah, yeah. out that that's not, in fact, the case. So that's a, as we learn more about it. It's not that we become complacent, but that we we understand what is and what isn't a danger, and then you can mitigate it. So our ICUs, oh, are, our, our ICUs are, are pristine. I don't really feel like there's a true danger to going into these rooms that have been cleaned out. Since that interview, Dr. Kapal is now seeing deep brain stimulation patients again at Mount Sinai in New York and continues to help people live better lives. Thank you for listening.